1: everyone, welcome back to The Solo Collective. I'm Rebecca Seal. This episode is all about resilience. And we've spoken about resilience before. We did an episode with Adrienne Herbert, all about sort of personal resilience. And I think that this episode is more about collective resilience. And it's also about unpacking the idea of resilience in and of itself, because I'm talking to Bruce Daisley who is a best-selling author and he's a technology leader in the UK. He used to run Twitter in Europe, and before that he was at YouTube. And he's got this brilliant podcast called Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. And he's really a thought leader in the future of workspace. But he found himself getting really obsessed with the idea of resilience. And his next book is called Fortitude, The Surprising Secrets of Resilience and How to Master Them. And it's coming out in May 2022. So this conversation is about what he discovered about resilience as he did his research and the ways in which we have fundamentally misunderstood it. He thinks that it's basically become this pervasive term, which is used without understanding and in some cases without meaning and often without accuracy, almost as a kind of stick to beat us with, like that we should just pull our socks up and become more resilient. The nice thing about this conversation, given that it's the last one in this series of The Solo Collective, is that we naturally have ended up touching on a bunch of the themes that have run through the two series, in fact. So we talk about loneliness, we talk about purpose, and I'm really pleased about that because I feel as though it naturally kind of wraps up some of the stuff that I've been thinking about for the whole course of the two seasons that we've done for The Solo Collective. I'm really fascinated by resilience, but I'm really fascinated by what you think about it, because it's different to lots of what other people think about it. So can you tell me first why you wanted to write this book about resilience in the first place?
2: I sort of had a vague notion on it because um, it's it's one of those things that has become such a trending topic. It's become such a buzz phrase that we sort of struggle to reflect back on when it wasn't this... Phrase this invocation that was given to us that mm. we were we were told that we were meant to be resilient and we just surrounded it with it all the time and in fact one of the things I was sort of already doing some research and stuff and then I found myself very close to the epicenter of the biggest explosion in peacetime. Uh, I was in Beirut last summer when there was but there was this colossal blast uh, in the middle of Beirut last year and um, and the really interesting thing at the time is that both the New York Times and the BBC said. All almost identical sentences, they said, well, if there's one thing we know about the Lebanese people, we know they're resilient people. And something that had really stuck in my mind from a New York Times article about six months before, really sort of reflecting on people who've gone through the water crisis in Flint, Michigan, or people who generally beset with situations. And this uh, this author had had said in the New York Times piece, they'd said, resilience is a myth for a life half-lived. And right, OK, that's a really interesting phrase that sort of it's so complicated, I want to unpick it. And effectively, what the person was saying was that resilience is what we sort of expect of the people who are the victims, who are the, the people who somehow find themselves on the receiving end of misfortune. And um, so back to where I was in Beirut, someone was quoted in a Turkish newspaper, actually, but Beirut he was quoted in a newspaper a Turkish newspaper, saying F resilience. We're we're done with being resilient. We just want to live our lives. These things in combination really struck me as they they had a connection between them. Anyway, uh, resilience is this myth, this mythology. We're, We're expected to be resilient. And it just really struck me again. Wow, we're using that phrase again because effectively, resilience is the phrase that we use when we just want people to shoo away from us. Well done. Get on with it. We'll celebrate you if you're resilient. And so I just became uh, intrigued. And look, here's what happened. I spent the, the subsequent, I, you know, I guess I've done a year and a half research into this and I've got a book coming out early next year on it. Um, but what, what you often find is that resilience is a very convenient Invocation. It's a very convenient notion that serves a number of people. In fact, I chatted to uh, just an incredible psychologist, a guy called Alex Haslam, which who is, um, he features very heavily in my book because his work is so incredible. But um, he, he sort of said, look, you know, actually, if we wanted to trace the growth of the phrase resilience in the UK, we'd look back to a time around the millennium where an NHS trust I think uh, in in Yorkshire was told that it had such a toxic work environment that they were told that they needed to redress their working conditions immediately. And what happened around that time that firms who were sort of were equally culpable of having bad cultures decided it wasn't that they had bad cultures, but that the people working there weren't resilient enough. And it's this incredible reframe. It's not us that's the problem. It's you that's the problem. Now, that really chimes with the things that I've heard. I've had so many friends who've said to me, I've just been sent on resilience training. And what it does is it reframes a corporate problem that we've created a version of work that's utterly toxic and sort of filled with unnecessary stresses. And it reframes it. It's not us that's the problem. It's it's like gaslighting. Mm. Anyway, what you get in, you, you start going into the whole way that resilience has permeated a number of ways that we think. Here's the direct parallel for what I think it's like. Plastic recycling was invented by the plastic industry. Only 10% of plastic is recycled. Uh, but the problem they had, the plastic as we know it really, innovation that was really sort of exploded in the 1970s. And, and by the late 80s, early 90s, there was so much plastic being used that people's bins were filled with plastic and the streets were filled with plastic and, and everywhere was filled with plastic, that the plastic industry decided that what they would do is they would create this idea of plastic recycling. Plastic recycling makes no economic sense. The wonder of plastic is it's so extraordinarily cheap to make. Plastic recycling makes no sense. It degrades. It has no value to it. It turns a really cheap product into a really expensive product. But the plastic industry knew that if they created a recycling, plastic recycling, effectively the blame for too much plastic terms from the plastic industry and who probably should, you know, we should be using more reusable products. We, we should have a balance of, of this wonderful plastic, but also other things, or paper-based products, whatever. It turns the responsibility of that from industry, all owned by the big oil firms, into consumers. It's complete to which room. Resilience, the way we talk about resilience is this really convenient thing that companies actually want to pass the burden onto individuals. A lot of the research about about it is vaporware. It doesn't work. And so like that, I became obsessed with that. I'm not surprised you became obsessed with it.
1: I also think that there are echoes of this in lots of other things to do with work. And I think you and I might have discussed some of them before. But one thing that came into my mind while you were talking was the commodification of self-care. Right. And the fact that, you know, if you just spend enough money look, looking after yourself, you will develop resilience or be more resilient to the shocks and slings and arrows of life. But it creates this notion, again, that it's the responsibility of the individual, that these problems are fundamentally individual issues rather than social or cultural or economic. And that's really concerning because, it, it it's, as you say, it's a sleight of hand. It's a... It's a magician's trick, isn't it?
2: Absolutely. So the, the social aspect is the most critical part of this. I was also really taken with the mythology of resilience and, you know, and the resilience story permeates you know, so many of the big stories we tell, you know, whether it is the superhero story, Spider-Man's mum and dad were killed, but here he is, he's, he's off to save the world or... Um, you know, some of the athletes we celebrate, some of the, like, some of the most iconic people we know, they've got this resilient story to them. And as a result of that, we sort of celebrate these people as examples of how we could prevail and, and do well. But then when something goes wrong, we get collectively angry with them. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an insight. You know, Simone, Simone Biles is so parental abandonment. Her dad left. Really, she can't remember her dad at all. Her mum was a drug addict who ended up going to jail severe addiction issues. Uh, she spent uh, over a year in, in care, ultimately adopted by her grandparents. Uh, she unfortunately was victim of the, the sexual abuse scandal that was at the heart of USA Gymnastics. All of these things. Simone Biles is the most uh, awarded gymnast in history. And, and so, you know, she's the, like the poster child for resilience in, in some ways. And then something goes wrong at the Olympics. And you get Piers Morgan and people like that saying, "Well, time she, she got a bit more resilience." Look, the really intriguing about all of that, think about all of that, is that actually trauma is very heav- heavily researched. These, um, uh, we can learn a lot from this actually. So, uh, so trauma these. Uh, In the last 15 years, sort of big steps forward um, with something called adverse childhood experience, which is ACES. You might you might know this already, but the, the way that the ACES methodology works is that A couple of really coincidental co-discovery. These two clinicians, doctors in the US, were practicing in different practices. And to cut a long story short, they effectively observed that the traumatic experiences that individuals had in childhood were manifesting as adult illness so you know so they came up with a, a score which is called the aces 10 really so did you experience physical abuse did you experience sexual abuse did you ha- a parent leave did you have an addict at home did you have someone at home who went to jail there's a uh, series of these 10 things and you score yourself yes or no on all of them and at the end you get an, an ACE score now what they found was an aces score of four correlates with your chance of getting cancer being 80 percent higher uh, your chance of getting all manner of illnesses is significantly worse. If you've got an ACE score of four, you're 32 times more likely to have educational difficulties. By one survey, 65% of people in US jails have got an AC score of six or above. And what you find is that trauma directly correlates, not with winning gold medals. Well done, Simone Biles, for prevailing over it. Trauma directly correlates with really bad outcomes in life. But what you find is that some people who, who also have, coincidentally, have an elite level of talent can create what's called identity revitalization they can use their trauma direct it into their talent but the the consequences of the trauma still remain so you do get these interesting stories Andy Murray greatest British athlete of all time he was present at the Dunblane school shooting the only ever uh, school shooting in British history so you know you you get these sort of really interesting things but what happens is we celebrate the people who come out of them saying oh good example of resilience and what we miss is that actually trauma is just about the cause of, of most ill health and, and it's like it's a really bad example to give to say we want our people to learn from these traumatic experiences so you, look you know it's sort of really interesting we celebrate these people but we only choose half the story we cherry pick half their story
1: yeah that's huge isn't it we do that so much I mean there's so many contexts in which we do that as well like um you know the the celebration of overwork fire People like Beyoncé, we've talked about that on the podcast before, and Elon Musk and that kind of stuff. You know, we're we're really good at choosing individual narratives which suit our stories, but actually they don't suit our stories. They
0: they serve a sort of meta story, don't they? Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems,
1: but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. But it's interesting, right? Like we cherry pick, as you, as you put it, in lots of different ways, which are quite damaging. We don't realise what we're doing. I read something that you said about calm down and resilience, having parity. Can you expand on
2: that a bit? The gentleman who came to Fix My Internet gave me some workman wisdom and I thought this was very helpful. He was talking about calming down and he said, never in the history of calming down had someone calmed down by being asked to calm down. But, you know, it's similar, isn't it? We just yeah. want someone to calm down because get out of my face. Yeah. Get out of my face with all this angst. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's sort of very similar. I found myself as a result of it. Like, every time you see the word resilience, you think, what's, go- what's the story going on here, you know? We, we sort of are very selective with how we apply resilience. It's Normally, you know, people who've suffered societal injustice, they need to be a bit more resilient. And we, we sort of kind of want them to just do a little... Good dog trick for us, really. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. And I'm thinking of all the ways in which I've been guilty of thinking in these ways. Because so to take it back specifically to people who work by themselves, like, I don't know how I'd frame this now, but I've definitely said, you know, those of us that work alone need to be resilient. Like, it's a necessity to the way that we work. But what would you do with that phrase? Would you say that that's true? Or am I misframing something that's true, but I'm using the wrong language
2: for? Okay, let me hear how out with what I worked on and what I discovered. So there's countless examples of people being resilient. That's the challenge with me saying there's a myth of resilience. <laughs> I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm saying that the the version of it that we've constructed is unhelpful. Yeah. What you find, though, is there's plenty of... So, you know, to differentiate, I use the word fortitude. I'm not trying to slap a trademark out. I'm just saying, like, let, let's sort of pause that hackneyed phrase that we're using. But what you find is... like I'll, I'll use resili- resilience for this. What you find is actually there's plenty of examples of resilience being found in unexpected places but here's the inconvenient part resilience is a collective strength it's not an individual strength and so there's a wonderful example of a an American Air Force man who was sent to Britain in 1943 to document for the. US government the state of morale in Britain and you know four years into the war he was expecting to find a pretty broken down place but he said, I've never met such a cheerful, happy, positive, well-motivated population in my life. It's astonishing how their sense of collective well-being. Or you see examples of natural disasters. There's a wonderful piece of writing by a writer called Rebecca Solnit. And she, she wrote a book called Paradise in Hell. And she goes through eight natural disasters. And she says, what tends to happen in natural disasters. We have this notion that there's going to be like this mass panic, that people are sort of screaming with their arms flailing in the air, running away. And what ha- actually happens is you get this new identity that's created. Their old identities are sort of destructed. And this new identity of like we're in this together is constructed. And people thrive in that situation. It's, it's extraordinary that even in that adversity, people thrive. And there's a really important lesson in that because almost one of the things that you find is that when people feel synchronized with the people around them, if they see themselves reflected in the people around them, if they feel part of something, then they feel strong. Resilience is a collective strength in that regard. And actually back to the trauma thing I talked about, one of the biggest problems with trauma is it serves to unsynchronize us. So these these are like a massive best-selling book that sort of been a perennial bestseller, but it's really sort of gone into its own during the last 12 months by a guy called Bessel van der Kolk, and it's called uh, The Body Keeps the Score. But what Bessel van der Kolk says, trauma seeks to unsynchronize us because effectively the lived experience of trauma is shame. And so we've gone through a traumatic experience. It might be a parent or it might be a, something that's happened to us personally. It might be a personal circumstance. And what it serves to do is it desynchronizes us from people around us, that we we feel that we've got something that makes us different to them. And so if you know that strength seems to come from people feeling synchronized with those around them and weakness seems to come, you know, anxiety and, and sort of uh, bad experience seems to come from being unsynchronized, then you know, the, the critical thing for anyone who works at home, anyone who sort of works alone is thinking, how can I feel part of something that's bigger than me? Because when I feel like I'm drawing on people around me and that might be you're in a slack group with friends or you might be actually just make time to have personal connections with other people or you emphasize the the personal relationships you've got, and You make sure that you dial them up in other ways. It can be really helpful.
1: And do you think that that's part of the reason why, so I'm I'm thinking about this in the context that I'm living right now, or we're living right now, that we're recording this in the week where the fuel crisis is happening. So oh, it's not a fuel crisis, really. There's panic buying. Do you think that when we experience moments like that, whether they're micro in our own lives or macro ones, like the one that the country's sort of, I don't know, spasming through at the moment, do you think that that divisiveness creates a kind of, like a, a resilience hole because I guess what I'm feeling personally this week is a sense of a lack of resilience in myself because I feel like there's quite a lot of division like queuing at the pumps fighting over petrol that kind of thing I don't feel much we at the moment I feel like yeah. everybody's very yeah. me this particular week yeah so do you see that impact does that have a resilience effect I guess is why I'm asking
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, exactly right. When we feel like there is fragmentation, it's really challenging. It's really interesting how the New Zealand leader, but what she spoke about through the pandemic was like, we need to create a team of four million people Mm. and we're a team. And, you know, that sense of creating that Whereas to contrast that with the approach towards COVID in the US, which became... A schism of like the maskers and the anti-maskers, mm. something that was a health implementation sun, suddenly became like which tribe are you on? Mm. and so absolutely you know this all comes down to identity groups, social identity, it's sometimes called. It all comes down to if you see yourself reflected in a group, it can be the source of great strength, but if you see divisions with other groups and antagonism towards other groups, that can that can make. The world very difficult difficult but i tell you what the big thing i think this this is where this is coming i spent eight years working at twitter and uh you know what you find and before that i worked at youtube and i think all of this is coming to workplaces because the people who don't necessarily feel that they are the same us mm. as the bosses people who don't feel that they're the same us as the people who are either in the office five days a week or mm-hmm. at home five days a week. People who don't necessarily see, you know, they see the pay gap of, in their organization and they don't feel that the boss is us, they feel the boss is them. Uh, all of this is coming to uh, to workplaces, I think. It's sort of gonna have a really big impact on sort of the next uh, iteration of work.
1: Which is a whole, I want to do another podcast mm. with you on that. Yeah. <laughs> do you think there's a distinctive difference in that in what you're saying there in terms of how people who work at majority at home are going to feel like are we looking at a kind of fortitude issue because I guess I guess what I what I'm inclined to think about working from home I guess if you're if you're working for an organization but you're working at home what I'm inclined to think is I'm inclined to be quite positive about that kind of working but I guess what I'm what I'm beginning to wonder about, partly through this conversation, and partly through other research, is that you know, yeah, maybe that's going to be quite divisive. Do you think that that's going to be something that organisations can kind of manage?
2: Look, the, the most critical thing is making people feel that they've got a shared a shared sense of identity and mm. the and and the. So, you know, to my mind, I think one of the challenges we often create when we're trying to create energetic identity or purpose or whatever if we try and bring too many people under the tent and you know if you've got an organization of 500 people they're not going to have the same identity and they can create a performative identity that thinks they've got it but it's it's not going to be as heartfelt the, the more you stretch it the more you create it but i think my overall feeling is these very little substitute for some face-to-face interaction and you see really good examples of that. You know, I, I would be saying we're starting to see sort of articulation of some of the models of this. I, I'm like you, sort of um, I, I'm very strongly in favour of, of remote working and home working. And I think, you know, it's it, actually the, the thing that's going to be most interesting over the course of the next two years is how much firms resist against these things or how much they say, right, we've rewired the whole whole organisation and how can we get more into this you know the firms that resist are going to find in two years time that work doesn't feel the same and that they'll either regretfully think oh we should have had people back five days a week which is a nonsense but they'll say we lost something that day and the best organizations are are going to be the ones who say okay this notion that, you know, work is this Marrakesh market of people pressing ideas into each other's hands and this frizzle of excitement as, as people wander around coming up with ideas, hollering ideas over to other tables. That's a myth as well. How <laughs> about we say... Nonsense, isn't it? Yeah, I, I wish anyone who suggests that is was given closed circuit television footage of their team yeah. in January 2020. Yeah, because they'd look at these sort of miserable, grey skinned people answering emails, sitting at their desk, wearing headphones, so, you know, so they can't hear wearing anyone headphones. else. Headphones. The <laughs> only interactions they were having was sort of acknowledging that you know they wanted a cup of tea if they had a good culture environment. But, you know, it's a total nonsense. But we've created this Disneyland version of what The Office is like, that work can't live up to it. And, you know, what you're starting to get now is you're starting to get more and more people like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have to go into the office. It's a nightmare because I'm trying to do video calls all day Mm. and there's nowhere to do them. And it's driving me crazy. I could have stayed at home. It cost me 25 quid to get in. People are saying all those things. It's destined to reach a situation that if your work mandates you're in the office three days a week, it's destined to be a situation where people will creepily, quietly discreetly be reducing that down to two days a week did anyone notice I might go down to one day a week like this sort of breaching all terms of culture and that's what's going to happen that that's definitely what's going to happen and what people will say at the end of that they 'll say it doesn't feel the same does it, it doesn't feel the same <laughs> yeah whereas the firms who say right here's the story it's going to be far more accountability here is the systems we're, we're doing to sort of measure what everyone's doing we're going to give you more scope to get your job done so you 've got less video fewer video calls and Additionally, we're getting together once a month and the objective of that day is this and we're all going to be together, We'll be in teams, whatever it is, and sort of using the sense of collective energization in the same way that if you've got old friends that you get together with once a year or once every three months, you don't need to see them every Tuesday, Wednesday mm-hmm. to keep that relationship going. The relationship can be sustained and magnified by doing something meaningful together occasionally. And I think, you know, we're, we're sort of right at the outset of, of firms. The best firms will be thinking about that right now.
1: Is there anything else that we can advise solitary workers to, to do? Or is it is that the fundamental thing is connect with other
2: people in real ways? The other key component of resilience is is personal control. And, you know, that's one of the things that probably there's nothing actually in the whole of health and well-being that has as much impact on health outcomes as control. When, When we feel an absence of control, it's what can make us feel helpless. It can make us feel overwhelmed. You know, stress and anxiety directly come from that. But, you know, one of the experiences of remote working is often or, you know, working contract work or whatever is often an absence of control you hear nothing from a client then you get a million different bits of feedback that you're you're expected to respond instantly mm. and you know there's a sense of of overwhelm that comes from that and personal control has a huge bearing in fact like and it's a ripple down effect this um incredible research that says that parents that have no control in their jobs are more are more controlling of their children parents who do me- mechanized Robotic jobs where they're given no insight are more authoritarian as parents, and parents who have freedom and leeway at work permit more expressive creation. So it's it's sort of a a miserable reality. Children who are bullies at school are many times more likely to have authoritarian parents. Mm. So it's like this this manifestation of when we don't feel control, and I think that's probably one of the critical elements of. You know, people who are freelance working or remote working is that work is so unpredictable that when it comes, we don't necessarily feel we've got the freedom to say this is going to be on my to do list in two weeks. But rather more, this is going to be I'm going to I'm going to deal with this now. Yeah. And so, you know, personal control is one of the biggest con- contributions to resilience and how you Get control, obviously, it's got a, a load of different components to it. Seeking to get control is, isn't a straightforward thing. So I would say that that would have a really big bearing, you know, control. The, the components that I've got are sort of fortitude, control, identity and community, where identity and community often are sort of two parts of the same thing. But yeah, control is is huge.
1: I also think control is a perception issue too, though, isn't it? Because it's, it's like I am certainly capable of feeling out of control in my work life, but actually, if I take a couple of steps back, which is hard in itself to do, mm. often you can realize that actually you've got more control than you think like and I mm. think that that again has some kind of cultural issues around it as well because I think that you know we're so addicted to the language of busyness and the the language of overwhelm and we we use that so reflexively often we can convince ourselves that we're out of control when in fact we're in control if we just look a little bit more closely.
2: Yeah. And, and other people can see, you know, options that we've got that we are often can't perceive ourselves, mm. right? You'll say, well, I'm overwhelmed here. I'm, I'm helpless. There's nothing I can do. And other people could say, oh, you could do that. And, and actually, like, it's, it's that insight. Oh, yeah, most definitely. And when we feel that we've got some ability to, to influence our circumstances, uh, it, it can sort of get us out of a sense of, of feeling helpless.
1: Thank you so much, Bruce. This has been such a brilliant conversation and really, really enlightening. And um, it's going to make me think very differently about resilience. And it's going to make me kind of, I think, pull a bit at the threads whenever I hear someone pronouncing on it. Um, So I'm very grateful.
2: Thank you. Lovely to chat to you.
1: For me, the strongest thing that came out of that conversation was a sense of the necessity of community for people who work by themselves and obviously that can take many forms and we can choose how we build our communities and that's highly personal to us and I think that lesson has come to us through the episodes that we've had on things like parenting and networking as well is that being isolated makes everything a great deal harder and as Bruce is saying it also has health impact so definitely something that we will need to consider and act on So that's the end of season two of The Solo Collective. Thank you for being with us. If you've missed any of the previous episodes, please do go back and have a listen. There's lots of wisdom within them, very little from me, but definitely from my brilliant guests. And if you like what you hear, feel free to go and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And I'm going to close somewhat cheesily with a line from my own book, Solo, which is that we may be solo, but we are in this together. You have been listening to the Solo Collective with me, Rebecca Seal, a chalk and blade original, produced by Laura Hyde with support from Fatuma Kera, original music by Dee Plume, and engineering by Matt Nielsen.
0: Hold up.
1: chalk and blade.